and welcome to Scott's Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Stuart and I'll be joined by Peter on each episode where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by our love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we will be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers or if you'd like to get in touch to leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com. You can also find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a dram and enjoy our conversation about more aspects of maturation. Evening, Peter. How are you doing? Very well, Stuart. And are you keeping well yourself? I'm grand. Doing doing great. Doing great. It's uh, It's been a lovely day here. Out enjoying the sun. It's lovely. Yeah. Getting a wee bit of uh, springtime vitamins in you. Yeah, get the sun on the on the head and a uh, nice bit of April weather, early April weather. It's always good. What's been happening with yourself? Well, a bit like yourself, enjoying a wee bit of sunshine. Clocks have changed. You get that wee bit of spring in the air. Mm-hmm. And I suppose as well, yeah, just a sense of things, you know, season changing, moving on, moving out of winter, possibilities ahead. And I suppose what, what is supposed peculiar is we, we, we haven't, although we set out to do some of this face-to-face, here we are a good 11, if not 12 months later, and we're still recording remotely just yeah. by, the, by the, the restrictions we have. But at the same time, you're also thinking, well, I'm looking forward to the chance to sit down and and, and do this face-to-face. I know, I can't, it must be about a year since we, since we yeah. recorded the first episode. Maybe not, maybe not a year since we put it out because I think I think we recorded it and then it was, it was I I had to get my head around websites and uploading podcasts and editing stuff. So uh, yeah, it took a wee bit of time. But yeah. well, it's another way of keep keeping us busy over the last uh, the last year or so. It's it's been great fun though. It's been great fun and uh, huge thanks to you for you know being available and generous with your knowledge so uh, it's always great to chat with you ah same to you and oh and we'd also say when you have to acknowledge the, the hard work you've put in and all the all the website building and oh. editing i get the easy job here of just getting <laughs> getting to have a couple of drams and, to, and, and let let my gums bump <laughs> well you know it's nothing if not fun. So that's uh, that's the main thing. We're not doing it for we're not doing it for profit. We're not doing it for any ulterior motives. It's just it's fun and educational. You know, I'm I'm learning loads. And big thanks to everybody who's been listening as well. That's uh, that's very heartening that we get so many downloads from all around the world. It's really appreciated. Yeah, it's quite nice to think that other folk want to listen and indulge us with something that we, we've just found so interesting and as as we've said so often once you start 
taking off a few layers, you just find there's more layers underneath. Aye, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, there's a lifetime of learning to be had, isn't there? Yeah, indeed. So we're here to talk about the maturation. We are, and we, we managed a wee roundup last time, kind of a sense of putting it in the, in the, the legal context that whiskey has to be in and matured in an oak cask, mm. and it has to be matured for a minimum of three years. Uh, we had some good fun setting that context, I think. So, yeah, we we bit more to talk about, although more, I think, in this, this particular one, Aye, there's, we have a focus on, on the casts themselves. And, yeah, um, this is yeah, huge. Uh, yeah, what they look like. And just when you were talk- mentioning casks, I had an image popped in my head there of, you know, you go, you might go to some whiskey retailers and they've got, a, they've got an old cask there, or some retailers have a living cask, a, a living uh-huh. cask where they're, they, they might be um, topping it up occasionally and drawing off their own house blend. So I was, I was thinking of that, an image of um, the Good Spirits shop in Glasgow popped into my head. And then I thought, I need to tell you this uh, story. So, you know, the Springbank local barley was released. When was it? A week ago today. Last Friday. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> hilariously, I thought I'll uh, I'll chance my arm and see if I can beat the bots, and you know, fastest finger first to get in there, and uh, get on the website and see if I could get myself a bottle. And of course, everybody knows what the outcome of that particular <laughs> battle is going to be. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, me nil bots everything you know they won everything and then rather uh, annoyingly within a couple of hours you see the same bottles up for sale in some online retailers with a huge markup anyway that's not part of the story yeah uh, the story is i thought i'll give it a go of course the outcome was as expected mm. and uh and then the following day i was in good spirits in glasgow picking up a couple of bottles and I was chatting with a couple of guys there, as you do, and I'm at the counter paying for the bottles, and one of the other members of staff at the end of the at the end of the other end of the counter said, "Is this you?" And was holding up a post-it note with my name on it and a bottle of Springbank local barley. Hey, <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, that is me, but. <laughs> How? What? I'm slightly confused. I don't understand what's going on because, as, as far as I could, you know, recall, I hadn't spoken with anybody about the possibility of getting a bottle through the shop. So I, I, I was very confused. So I, I thanked everybody very much and um, and went home with a spring in my step. Had a text conversation with one of the other members of staff who enlightened me as to what actually happened and um with no fanfare no announcement no web-based shenanigans or any fanfare the shop had decided okay who are the um who are the usual suspects who would be interested in buying something like this mm. and without notifying anybody they put all those names in a hat and my name came out Superb. 
So the invisible lottery. The absolute, and you won. And I won. I know. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is the, the one of the greatest things I've ever heard in, in, the, in the history of retail, never mind whiskey retail. So yeah, hats that's, off. That's, that's really nice, yeah. Hats off to yeah. the guys at Good Spirit. Yeah, I think, I think we need to raise a wee dram to them later for that. That's fantastic. And it, has, it is a very perplexing subject, isn't it, for about how to... How to access decent whiskey to be drunk? Yeah, yeah. And um, know, there, there are other other forces of, out there, aren't there, of, of people who, who need the latest, the absolutely latest um, edition. And yeah. I, I, we've, we've shared our thoughts on that before about mm. maybe missing the point. But that, that's that's a, a lovely story about how to about whiskey going to somebody who loves whiskey really and. And, and well, just an ordinary retailer looking after their customers too. Yeah, well, it, it, it just highlighted highlighted to me the the kind of somewhat reciprocal nature of. Yes. If, if you're a if you're a, a decent retailer, you you want to look after your customers, and if you're a decent customer, you 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 build up a relationship with with your local retailer. So it kind of um, bemuses me and, and confuses me somewhat when. I see people advertising that oh you can get this bottle on a, on your huge mammoth internet South American named uh, retailer for Dunstan, a highly yeah. discounted price and all the, all that's going to happen is you're going to kill all the high street retailers so yeah, yeah. a feel good story is how we might caption that yeah that's excellent here's to the local the wee guys yeah local. Absolutely. That's a great story. That's quite heartwarming. I mean, that's, that's cheered me up. If I wasn't already cheered up, I have lapped up the sunshine today. Going from there to maturation, have, have you got some starting points you want to launch from? Aye. I suppose we've got as far as thinking about the spirit should be the starting point is is matured in and becomes whiskey after three years and that's it's a vessel made of oak mm-hmm. it's a generic term a cask doesn't it and the more you, you kind of delve into what it looks like how it's made you, you get a real sense of just the wonder of these really complex chemical processes going on in the cask and well, I think we'll probably touch on that maybe at some point today, maybe if we're lucky, but at the same time, I think it's so complex that it deserves a whole podcast on on its own in terms of trying to understand the, just the multifarious things that are going on. But it actually comes down to the wood itself. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite a remark. There are such remarkable qualities about it. And I suppose when you think about it's made of oak, most of that oak comes from either Europe or North America. North America goes by this genus named Quercus. So Quercus alba is North America. Quercus robur is European oak. There are a couple others that I think we'll come to that do find their way into whiskey casks. But the, the majority of casks that we see whiskey matured in are going to either be American or European oak. 
there are some Japanese there is some Japanese oak and some specifically French oak, um, usually from the Limassan, and and I have come across Scottish oak. I think Glengoyne being the most memorable that I can think of in the the mid two thousands. I think you now kind of two thousand and five ish did a Scottish oak finish for some of their Glengoyne. I think two or three editions of them. So just when you're talking about the the different oak types, I was surprised to find. I mean, I thought, yeah, Quercus alba, Quercus robur, uh, in your limousine, and the, the Japanese stuff, like you say, uh, that I was, I was kind of aware of them. But then, in the results of having a wee dig around, there's there's actually more Quercus species than I thought. There's Quercus bicolor. These are these are all American oak. Quercus bicolor. Quercus, I'm, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, Quercus Mullenbergi, Quercus stellate, Quercus macrocarpa, Quercus lyrata, and Quercus durandi. And that was, yeah. I, I was utterly amazed. It was so many that, that, that I presume that these do still get used. Well, I, I, that, that's, I, I wouldn't dare to guess, Stuart, but I think what I picked up is there were thousands of, Hundreds, if not thousands, of varieties of oak, mm. but only a few that would suit whiskey yeah. maturation. Yeah, you know, I've got the porosity and the, the and the, and the good structure. Yeah, to to hold the liquid inside them. Well, we might pick up on some of that um, later when comparing some of the, those the less well known uh, oaks. Are, are we going to talk about medullary rays? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. <laughs> Brilliant. So it sounds like you did a bit about trying to find out some names about these and thinking about North American oak. Does it, was there anything stood out to you about how that compares to maybe European oak or all these other ones? Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of things that I thought, wow, I'd never thought of that, or looked a little bit into the general state of what kind of wood is used for coopering, for, for making casks. Um, so, like you say, there's different types of oak, etc. The American stuff, the American oak is mostly coopered in Kentucky and Missouri. That's, I think that's where most of the, the bourbon and, and, and whiskey production would be. Uh, but th that's not to say that the the timber's sourced from those locations. I think it's sourced from all over, uh, from all over the states. And as we know that the Scotch whisky industry uses a lot of secondhand bourbon barrels, and apparently the disassembling of those barrels to ship them is now not is is now in decline. And I think they're mostly shipped whole, which seems quite strange to my mind. From what I read, it says it's disassembling barrels is now in decline, but I, I don't know how much decline. I don't know how much yeah. they are still broken apart. You know whether they whether they're shipped whole because if they're if they're shipped whole, what you're effectively doing is transporting air, which can't be economic. I, I wouldn't have thought, but yeah, and certainly contrasts with the picture I you know I have in my head of just of piles and piles of staves, mm. and then I'm also without jumping too far ahead, those North American barrels would be would hold two hundred around about two hundred litres of spirit. Yeah. But in the 
certainly a common practice with them for them to arrive in Scotland and then five of those barrels would become four hogsheads. Yeah, yeah. So they, they would be made up to about 250 litres. You know, and that, is, again, with the skill of the cooper would come in to, to repurpose staves from a different cask and to make them larger to accommodate the Scotch whisky industry's needs. Mm-hmm. And if I remember rightly, probably making new heads for them, um, new new ends for the, yeah. for the cask themselves. Um, but having said that, just as, you know, with no scientific research at all, when I can, I've had a sense of looking at um, expressions of bottlings that have been put out, where the where the bottler puts in how many bottles of spirit they've got from the cask, and that's it's tended to be a little bit lower, or the people will name it's a bourbon barrel, it's not a hogshead. Yeah. So there's a slightly smaller outturn. So maybe there's some other other kind of suggestions there that that like you're saying that it's not all staves that are arriving. It's actually barrels that are arriving now. Yeah. Or that it's more common for barrels to arrive already made up. And just there's the there's the whole kind of American oak versus European oak, and and I think there's especially. Well, particularly in my mind, there, there was a lot of confusion about sherry casks. You know, what is a sherry cask? I know historically before they changed the legislation in Spain, they would be shipping, they would be exporting sherry in cask in wood. And those, let's say you're you're exporting all your sherry to, to the UK, well, those casks would then just naturally find their way into the, into the whiskey industry into the kind of chain. But I was quite surprised to to read that a lot of Spanish, a lot of the a lot of the bodegas will actually use American oak when they're when they're yeah. you know storing and maturing their their sherry. So it doesn't stand to reason, doesn't it's not a matter of course that sherried casks have to be European oak. So there, there's there's a yeah. whole kind of cross fertilization going on there, and what what was really quite startling was I, I was reading about some bottles from the early 1900s, some whiskey bottles that were in good condition and they were you know complete and and sealed, and the contents were analysed, and I don't know how they did it, but they were able to show that the whiskey had been matured in sherry or wine casks that were made from US oak. They're made from American oak as far back as the early 1900s. So this has always been the case. And so speaking for myself, maybe likely to jump to conclusions if somebody says this has been sherry matured, then you automatically think, well, it must be European oak because sherry is made in Europe. But that's patently not the case. And that's that's a really interesting film because I, I or idea, because I picked up just in the by the by, I've written that the the char in a cask continues to exert influence even in the bottle. Now, I just remember reading that going, oh, how does that happen? Because I, I certainly have seen uh, wee bits of char in a bottle. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's um, 
some folk we know quite well call them luckies, you know, because you get a wee bit of... <laughs> chew on. Oh, yeah, and a wee bit of wood still apparently doing some work in the bottle for you, <laughs> even after you But also, there's a sense that though the qualities that happen within the cask are it's almost like a signature of the, the wood. So North American oak has a consistent influence on the spirit, regardless of what has been in the cask prior to the whiskey going in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I think I'd picked up that although wine production, in particularly in France, had rested for a long period of time on European or sometimes French Limousin oak, that practice has changed as well. There's been a move from French wine producers to American oak as well. So just to mix up the variables. Mm-hmm. So you might have, as we probably will touch on in terms of the use of wine casts, sometimes the bottlers will go as far as to name the chateau or the producer on their label of where their wine had come from, you know. Um, but even, so the notion that it might be a European wine, it doesn't follow that it's European oak. Yeah. Just to mix up the possibilities there, you know, inputs and outputs don't necessarily follow. So I, I think that's a nice, a nice wee reminder that we shouldn't assume anything really, even from even from the colour that we see from a whiskey. Yeah. You know, yeah. just because it's dark doesn't mean that's a, well, that's that's hefty European sherry oak. That is. Yeah. It's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we could we could probably at some point tonight have a have a good kind of um discussion comparison about bourbon versus sherried sherry can we call it sherry oak european oak sherry cask see the the the, the lines are already blurred yeah anyway i think the the main thrust is going to be a, a lot of bourbon cask and then a lot of sherry cask and we'll maybe dig around in in each of those camps maybe uh, yeah, I think so. But just before we get to that, I can't remember if we talked about last week, last time we 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 talked. I think you'd you'd been doing a bit of digging on the on the legislation, and mm. we, pro- we probably did me- pro- probably did mention this, but I couldn't remember. The EU legislation states that it has to be a wooden cask. It doesn't specify it has to be oak, and that's uh-huh. why in Ireland you can get legitimately produced whiskies that are matured in. Mulberry or sycamore or you know whatever uh, cherry yeah all of that stuff but I was reading the that there is some evidence to suggest that that those different those non oak wooden casks there's suggest evidence which should suggest that there's a a less balanced or a or a or a less complex sensory profile due to those the characteristics of of those other woods but I, I mean i'm just speaking from i'm just regurgitating what i'm what i've been reading i've not i can't remember tasting any whiskies from cherry or mulberry or in in fact maybe when i was in waterford i was in the cellars with neil the brewer and he was letting us try some stuff but i don't think i don't think he listed they call them the funnies <laughs> they've got these casts called the funnies uh, I don't think he took a, a dip of any of them. 
But there you go. It'd be interesting to see, you know, just as a comparison, just to taste some of that stuff. Yeah, and well, I think that fits too. But I suppose I was I was sticking perhaps more narrowly to the thoughts on oak, but was easily convinced that there's something very particular about the chemical interactions that go on with the structures of the wood and the alcohol that produce particularly mesmerising and complex reactions Yeah. to create these multiple sensory experiences as a drink a glass of whiskey. Yeah. Um, how, I had no sense of why it had come to be oak, but that, that's interesting. I, I knew other casts have been used, but that's interesting. You've, you've been much more closer to them than I have, and that maybe the spirit from them just doesn't quite sing in the same way. The only other anecdotal comments I've heard about those other wood types is that they're a hell of a leaky and they're, they're not quite as yeah, tight and watertight as 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 oak is. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about the structure, the internal structure of wood and how it's composed of... That just got me thinking, actually, when you were saying about the different qualities. Could we, could we maybe mention, because we we're, we're talking about focusing on American and European oak, do you maybe just mention in passing the other three major ones and then we could focus because I think there's some of those similar issues that I picked up that in Scottish oak one of the issues for it it has a I think a slightly higher resin content and I certainly remember the Glengoyne I tasted was very um, very tannic and almost piney wow um, okay the issue with Scottish oak is that it doesn't grow in quite a long, straight, unknotted element. So the, the skill of the cooper of making a Scottish oak cask mm-hmm. is to work around the knots, which, of course, then you're not going to get the same length of staves. Yeah. And that, that might make that cask more prone to leaking. Similarly with Japanese oak, which is goes by name, two names, Monjolica or Mizunura, if I'm getting that pronunciation. And then again, it tends to be a little bit more soft and porous. Oh. So again, a little bit more prone to leaks. But you get a much higher vanillin content, so it's going to be a much sweeter whiskey. The only thing I heard, I, was, I just stumbled upon something when you're talking about Japanese oak, the only thing I really stumbled upon was that these oak species are grown all over East Asia. And I think generally they're made into 500 litre casks. I don't right. know if, if you could confirm that. I don't know. And then that they're oh, way ahead of me, isn't <laughs> they're, she- they're seasoned with sherry for a year. Mm. And I don't know whether that's just that's an industry standard in Japan or you know the Far East or mm. Taiwanese whiskies, etc. So come to think of it, have when when we see Japanese whiskey, do we see a lot of light coloured Japanese whiskey? Do we see Japanese whiskey that's akin to bourbon? Matured whiskies. Yeah, I, I do. I'll need to look then again, I think my experience isn't wide enough. I think to to be able to say with any great confidence. No, my my my, my knowledge and experience of Japanese whiskies is extremely limited. So yeah. we're talking about bourbon casks and American oak and European oak, but but what 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 are the characteristics that define oak? What what kind of things does oak give? us as coopers that we're wanting to make we're wanting to make casks that yeah, well, mature whiskey in a really 
positive way? What do they give us? It's remarkably pliable. It's porous in terms of air breathability. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, particularly for American oak, those pores will come to the medullary rays later. The structure of the pores that distribute the, the, the water around the tree uh -huh. are deeply complex and, and tight so that they themselves will hold in any liquid that's in the cast. So you get this amazing phenomenon that the, the pores are small enough to let air pass in and out of the spirit, but too small for any liquid to pass out. Right. Which makes it absolutely ideal for storing the liquid we love so much. Yeah, there was there was two things that really grabbed my attention when I was looking into, you know, how how is a tree constructed. So you've got the outer bark, then you get the inner bark, and then there's, there's a, a sheath, if you like, of this stuff called cambium. And the cambium contains a lot of sugars and it sheathes the, the inner sapwood of the tree. And the cambium contains two cell types. One of them, one of the cell types is axial, so it runs up the length of the trunk yeah. of the tree. And the other cell type is a ray. So this is your um, where your medullary rays come in. So if you, if you imagine you've got a, the trunk of a tree and you take a chainsaw through the, the middle of it and you're looking at the clock face, if you like, of, of the, the, the round end of the cylinder of the tree, you'll see right in the middle, you'll see the, the pith. And that can be quite soft, the very, very centre of the tree. And running from there out to the bark at the edge, you can see, especially in oak, you can see these rays running out. Now, apparently all, all trees have these medullary rays, but usually they're only about two or three cells wide and almost invisible. But with oak, and I think only with certain species of oak, they can be up to 20 cells wide, so they can be visible. And yeah. the way that it was described to me was the the image of the oak is, is very steadfast and strong and it doesn't bend in the wind you know the other trees will have a bit of give in them but you might see oak trees that are toppled over in the wind with their whole whole root ball exposed because the trunk is so strong and it's those medullary rays that give it the strength there was a guy i was watching who was explaining it and i'm not sure exactly how this works but it, it kind of made sense to me if you imagine um a chair with webbing bands that you sit on like um, just horizontally next to one another, these bands that you sit on. So you sit on it and your your arse is going to fall through. But if you have the, 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 the webbing interweaved at right angles with one another, then it's much stronger and you're, you're not going to be yeah. able to push through that. Now, I think the medullary rays act as that kind of cross-sectional torsion that doesn't, allow any movement in the trunk in the rest of the wood so when you're making staves out of that they're extremely strong they're pliable like you say but there's a strength there's an inherent strength in there that you don't find with other wood types yeah i picked up too that there's a there's a difference in the way 
those structures appear in European compared to North American oak. All right. Is that those, the rays in North American oak are capped, which makes them, so they're sealed over, tylosis, I think it's called. Um, so it makes them watertight. But that, that was the other thing that really, what I said earlier on, there's two things that really stood out. That was the second one that really stood out. So it's, it's kind of like, well, for for the cupor's purpose, perfect. But that's not the same system. You know, the, the pores aren't sealed in the same way in European oak. And what that means for the cooper or in terms of stave making or cutting to make staves is that American oak can be sawn because you're not going to damage the medullary rays in the same way, but European oak has to be cleaved you know, along, along those natural splits within the wood so that you're not damaging or breaking the, or exposing the, sealed, the unsealed pores so because you would just have a, a leaky cast in. Well, yeah, because when you're thinking about the, a cask and the staves, uh, the stave is going to be taken from the length of the trunk. Hmm. And you were saying earlier about the, the transference of nutrients and liquid about the tree would travel up those kind of like blood vessels, those veins in, in the wood. So if you take that ca you take that stave and you've sawn off the end of it, but we know that the the spirit penetrates the wood and goes inside the the wood. So how come it doesn't leak out the end of the stave? And that's exactly what you're yeah. <laughs> so that's your tylosis that 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 was really quite quite a wee eye opener for me. Yeah. Well it's not the only differences I suppose. Well we should we stick with the tree, shouldn't we? Because that what you're looking for, surprise, surprise. Like we talk about that kind of patience around maturing whiskey, but you mm. want to have patience around the growing of a tree. You want it to be grown in a relatively temperate climate, so it's got slow, steady growth. You've not, you've not, and it's time then, as the tree solidifies and makes itself dense with extra layers of growth coming out. You know, it's got my sense of it's doing two things there. Yeah, there's growth rings happening at the outside, but in the meantime. The earlier growth from years before is is becoming more compact and harder and harder mm -hmm. at the centre of the tree, producing those very tannins that we've talked about as a way of protecting it's the tree's protecting itself against burrowing insects and rot by creating this higher tannin at the centre. But it's that that centre that heartwood is exactly where you want to be getting the the wood that's going to make the staves. Yeah. Um, so the slower, the more predictable or the more stable that growth, the better it's going to be from the terms of the regularity of the structure of the wood mm. and all those pore structures we've talked about. So you're not going to get, depending on rapid changes in climate, you're not going to get one set of uh, rays that are 30 wide and then in the next year it grows super fast and they're 45 wide. Or, you're not going to get those variations in anything like the same way. And surprise, surprise, in terms of the activity of the tree, if you, you would, if it's going to be cut down to be made into casks, you'd want to do that cutting in wintertime when the growth is most subdued. Oh, wow. And again, you're not going to have a lot of that activity or growth going on within the tree. 
So even so, even just thinking about what you need a tree to be doing, <laughs> okay. So all those bits and pieces of, you know, if, if you're going to have it running away with itself, then that's not really going to make for a, a stable, coherent piece of wood. And if you cut it in the spring, when all the other nutrients and saps and all that are working around the tree, then you're probably not going to get the best from it at that point either. Wow, I hadn't thought about the seasonal aspect of felling the timber. Yeah, that's just like one of those things. You, you, I mean, I haven't got much more other than to say, you know, I can understand the context to the concept that you want to you want to be cutting it down when it its growth is at at its lowest. So, how about the um the the content of the tree? Just before we get to how the tree interacts with how the how the cask interacts with spirit. How about just the raw ingredients of what what is the tree bringing to the party? The main the main structure of the tree, as far as I could ascertain, is it's made up of cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. And yep. I think those three components I found coming back again and again in in whatever I was reading. These three things were just very active and all the way through the process. So the cellulose makes up 50% of the of the tree. It creates the cell wall layers within the, the kind of biology of the tree. The hemicellulose makes up between 50 and 30% of the wood and has a lot of sugars in it. It's got a lot of sugar content. So that's obviously going to have some kind of play further on down the line. And lignin, I don't know quite what lignin is other than it's found in cell and intercellular areas within the tree. And it's seen, I read that it's a binding agent. So it's kind of holding the tree together in some respect. And that could make up 15 to 30% of the, the wood as well within the tree. And then there's, there's things that were labeled non-structure compounds. So these would be elements found within the wood that don't play a part in, in holding the tree up and it's not part of the, the tree's kind of um, superstructure. So there's the tannins you were talking about. Um, I, I read about the tannins and they were called hydrolyzable tannins. Now, does that mean that they water are... Water-soluble. Water-soluble, right, okay. Um, so... Um, well, they, go, they would, as we mentioned before, neither, we're not chemists, so um, hydrolyzable... I mean, I'm guessing they would at least react with water. Yeah, yeah. And then there's there's the tannins and then there's volatile compounds. And so these two things have a are deemed to have a significant impact on the flavour development and maturation. So that's that's a big plus in terms of what oak is given is it's these well, the cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin, and these tannins and the compounds. And it, it appears that the tannins and the compounds vary. Uh, the ratios of them and the, the the amount of them varies quite considerably depending on the species, not just the species of oak, but also the origin of the of the oak. So you might have a Quercus alba grown in Kentucky that has quite different characteristics to a Quercus alba that's grown in Oregon, perhaps. And then there's your oak lactones, and I was reading that there's the one of the main compounds, uh, one of the main aroma compounds 
and then there's the 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 volatile phenols might be constituted of things like eugenol and vanillin um, and they are found in small amounts but the um, the amounts increase considerably when the cask is subject or when the staves and the cask is subject to to heat heat treatment and degradation of some kind wow you worked hard on that that was great i, I really enjoyed getting into all of that it was um yeah, that's what it's yeah, all about, really. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll come on to the charring and the toasting, but I think that certainly recognise that, that that's another part of the kind of chemical activation of the, the wood to prepare it then to get ready for for the spirit coming in. Yeah. And I think we're we're probably... We were trying to con contain ourselves, weren't we, to around 45, 50 minutes, so maybe you could try and tie some a, a wee bow up on on some of this, but I think we got into comparing really European and, and American oak and it, it picked up that there are then different qualities that then mm -hmm. the oak is offering up to the spirit, or sorry, I should say, to the, the liquid that's going into the cask. And equally then, that liquid will have a different interaction with the wood, which then leaves a different set of, a different preamble for the next spirit coming in. So yeah. we'll try not confuse ourselves by just sticking with American stuff goes on American oak for just now. Right. So <laughs> by, by, by and large, you're going to get bourbon and American oak. It's going in there at 68%. The wood will have been charred very heavily, so that exposes the lignum. Um, but what you're then getting then is what you could describe as quite an aggressive amount of alcohol going straight to work on the wood. And that's going to, extract or absorb all those harsher tannins like the soapy green notes and it's going to draw out the lignin with the, with its where you get the vanilla and the coconut yeah. flavors from and it's going to draw the kind of things like the tropical fruits spicy gingery notes the caramel fudgy notes and the honey and the marzipan and the butterscotch all of those are are going to that's what the surprise surprise the chemical nature of the bourbon is going to draw from the cast. That's how they're going to interrupt, interact to create these kind of flavours. Yeah. Compare that with a wine or a sherry cast though, and you've got a much lower level of alcohol. You know, it's going to, it's only 18%. It's not going to have the same aggressive interaction with the wood in the same way. Of course. Yeah. But it's, it's going to, so it's going to, but I suppose what I'm, maybe want to choose my words more carefully, it's going to react with the wood in a different way and also it's more likely that if it's European oak that it's been toasted been warmed up in the oven rather than fired with a ferocious flame so that wine or sherry isn't going to go to work and extract the same level of tannin it's going to get colour from the wood but it's not going to draw it's not going to have the same level of chemical interaction with the wood yeah. surprise surprise and we often talk about if whiskey's been left in sherry wood for a long period of time, it becomes over woody, it becomes much much more tannic and dry, like you've you've left your tea bag in your tea for too long. Well, I, I so. was just reading a, a wee bit about the the differences between what American oak gives the whiskey and what sherry, sherry cask does. And apparently there's a there's a higher level of extractives 
available in sherry in sherry casks and next sherry casks. So these extractives would be compounds, uh, aroma compounds, and flavor compounds that the the spirit can extract from the cask. And I think the, what you what you said about the lower ABV contents of the, the the sherry or the pour not being so aggressive aggressively interacting with the with the wood but then when the whiskey goes in there's a higher level of those extractives still left in the wood they they haven't been used up by the sherry so the the the, the whiskey there it's available for the whiskey to use or to extract and and, and react with and incorporate and one thing that was hinted at but it wasn't kind of stated overtly and and what i was reading was bold robust distillates and new makes are, are are thought to be kind of better suited for for sherry cask maturation because they can withstand that onslaught of extractives that yeah. the, the sherry cask is is blasting the spirit with and kind of delicate delicate uh, lighter distillates would end up being swamped and, and and just overwhelmed by the the cask but also if you've got then the, the you know the whole debate about casks that have been finished in a sherry you know sherry finished casks or sherry sherry finished whiskies and some people have a bit of a question mark about mm, was that a good whiskey to begin with or was it a bit of a dullard and you're just tarting it up with a bit of sherry that seems to be borne out by the by the, the the chemistry of it, if you've got a, a dull whiskey, you're not going to finish it in a bourbon cask because there's, you're not going to be able to tart it up to the same extent because it doesn't. Yeah, have. I, think, I think that's a fair point, and and also we we often talk about there's you know, like you were suggesting, whiskey's been overwhelmed. There's too much sherry in this whiskey, mm. and, and that if it's not been a robust spirit to start with. Then it's maybe more easily overwhelmed, um, and I think there's a slight correction, a correction to be had. To, I think when we talk about it's got too much sherry in it, you know, for lack of a better descriptor and a convenient shorthand. But I think as a wee reminder that actually the sherry left a whole lot behind in the cask, so you're going to need something a bit more bigger, bolder, and a bit more muscular. To deal with all of those extractives yeah. that that are there that just so happen to look and taste like sherry. But the caveat, I suppose, the wee word of warning is that sherry tastes and looks like that because it's been hanging about with that European oak. Right. It's those extractives that are in the sherry that make sherry look and taste like it does. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, then if you put whiskey in there. It's the power of that wood that's creating a very some uh, what we consider a similar taste profile. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got a lot of whiskey character in there to start with, then it's a milder spirit is going to get overwhelmed Absolutely. by those amazing extractives yeah. that just so happen to fit the profile of what sherry looks like because it was in there as well. If that's not too bumbling. <laughs> It all helps to understand what what the hell we're drinking, and it just and it adds to the appreciation. But you know, you, you, you're like, why does this why does this sherry whiskey taste different to the other sherry whiskey? And why does that one taste great, and this one feels a bit something? Yeah, you know? 
I think there's more life in that discussion. I think to be had, and I'm I'm hoping we'll get there. We'll get there sometimes. <laughs> well, in, in in an effort to um <clears throat> to be kind to uh, any listeners and and not drag on too long, shall we? Shall we just? I, I wouldn't mind just maybe prologuing what's what's still to come because I wouldn't mind having a wee natter about cast construction. I know we touched on it a wee bit, but I think I've got a yeah. little bit more of info, and we've not talked about cask sizes really you know i know you'd, oh, you'd, oh, you'd a, you've got a, lot, a ton of information about that i've still got a few things to dig into about construction of bourbon casks yeah construction of sherry casks even, even the preamble to that about how the wood is prepared yeah 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 exactly in the, in the years leading up to it becoming a cask yes how the cask is treated Cask regeneration, the chemistry, right? How about this for a for a statement, a cliffhanger? There's 45 odor active compounds in a bourbon barrel that have been identified by gra- by gas chromatography, whereas there was only seven identified from the wood. Oh, <laughs> uh, compare that with the received wisdom of, you know. 60% of the flavour comes from the cask, 80% of the flavour comes from the wood. 45 active odour compounds in a bourbon barrel have been identified by gas chromatography, whereas only seven were found to be from the oak extracted during maturation by the spirit. So the spirit's in there, it's extracting all these flavour compounds. Out of all of them, only seven come from the wood. And there's a couple of other weed nuggets of information that I, I I thought you never hear this. You never nobody ever nobody ever says that. We could maybe draw this one to a close and we can get stuck into um some more maturation and okay content in the next episode. That sounds great. We'll 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 seal off this cask, fire in the bunk cloth. Yes. And we'll open it up in the next episode. <laughs> Did you used to work in radio? <laughs> Only radio too. <laughs> uh, so who are we drinking to? The Coopers. Well, the, Coopers the, and the Foresters. The Foresters, yeah, the Lumberjacks. Lumberjacks. The Lumberjacks, they're all right. Yeah, to Lumberjacks and uh and Coopers. Here's here's to you. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>